Hello, hello, happy Saturday, everyone. Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes live stream podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. Uh, before we get started with our guest today, uh, next Saturday, August 15th at 2.30 p.m. Pacific Time, not Pacific Standard Time, Pacific Time, uh, 5.30 p.m. Eastern, we'll be joined by literary manager Jared Murray of Epicenter. And on Saturday, August 26th at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern, uh, Queen Sugar showrunner and writer-producer on The Blacklist and Lincoln Heights, Anthony Sparks, will be here to answer all of your questions. So be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. To get updates on all of our upcoming guests, links are on our website, scriptsandscribes.com. But today, we've got on a great guest. He is the co-creator and showrunner of the Netflix series No Good Nick. He's also a writer whose film credits include Puss in Boots, American Pie 2, Shrek the Halls, Granddaddy Daycare and Kindergarten Cop 2, and TV shows such as The Simpsons, Disney's Space Racers, and The Kicks on Amazon Prime. He is David H. Steinberg. Welcome to the show, David. Thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, so if, if anyone in the live stream has questions for David, please drop them in the chat when you have them and we'll answer them just as soon as we can. But first things first, um, I wanted to start at the beginning if we could. Uh, sure. We, Good place. we always talk about questions about writing and show running and, and staffing and all that. And we'll get to that shortly, but I think it's great to, to learn a little bit about you. So maybe you could tell us when did you first decided you wanted to work in the entertainment industry and, and writing in particular. How did you get your, what was your inspiration? How did you get yeah. your start? Yeah, no, I was one of these people that did not know that uh, writing was a thing that people did for a living. Um, I guess I never really thought about it, but I probably thought the actors made up the lines or something. Um, I grew up on the East Coast in Connecticut and I, um, after college, I went straight to law school as people do back uh, East. And um, I should have known that in law school that I was uh, not really, destined to be a lawyer for the rest of my life because I was um, trying to write like comedy things. Uh, I wrote a newsletter that was uh, like a comedy newsletter. And um, then I was a lawyer for four years, but I was not happy with it. I didn't like the job. I was working in a big firm in New York and um, I was desperately trying to like find something else to do with my life. I was like literally walking in circles. There was a thing that I would do. I was so um, immature and unable to like do the work that people were assigning me is that I had these coping mechanisms. So I would like leave my coat on the chair and then leave and go home. And so people would think I would leave the lights on and turn, disable my screensaver. So people thought I was still there. They just couldn't find me. Oh. And I would go home at like five o'clock. And so we were in this big office on Park Avenue and I would like walk in a circle around the office with like papers. So I'd be like, walking down the hallway, like I'm heading to a meeting and like no one's following you. So no one really sure. noticed. And so you would get to the corner you just keep going and go around and it took like 15 minutes to walk around in a circle. And then I'd go back into my office just to kill time because I was so bored. So a friend of mine who um, grew up in LA was a, went to college with me, said, um, you know, there's this, there's a thing in LA you might like called producing. And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. So I had started doing entertainment law just like a little bit. Uh, we represented a couple musical uh, artists and some record companies. So I got a kind of taste of like what the sort of um, entertainment side of things was. I wasn't really doing like entertainment law per se, but I was like, this seems interesting. And at the same time, I went to a Star Trek convention, which was like my big, um, I guess the inciting incident because at I huge star trek fan went to a star trek convention for the first i guess big enough not a big enough fan to have gone to star trek conventions before because <laughs> this is the first time i ever went to one but 
I bought a script and I was like, ooh, a script. I'd never seen a script before in my life. And I bought a script for a Star Trek Voyager. And I was like, oh, so this is like what it, the blueprint for the episode. And I was like, I've got ideas. Let me try to write one. So I went home and I like in Microsoft Word was like, I had a ruler. I was like, what are the margins here? Like when it's indented, how much is it? So I'm like setting margins in Word. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to write my own script. And um, that was really like my first exposure to like the idea that maybe I could do this. And so my friend was like, apply to this thing out in LA, it's the USC. And so I secretly took the GRE because I was already a lawyer. I didn't mm. tell anyone in my law firm that I was applying to grad school. And I sent off a secret application to USC and I got in. So then I didn't tell anyone in my firm that I was leaving. So I continued working for six more months and now instead of leaving at five, I was leaving at like three. I was going to see <laughs> movies in the middle of the day and they're, and it's like, are they gonna fire me? Like, how long can I get away with this? And I became like this kind of a legendary like scam artist of like my law firm. Cause I was like billing from like, my billing hours went from like 170 a month to like 90. And like partners would like come into my office and be like, what's going on? Why have your hours dropped off so bad? And I was like, yeah, I know. And that's it. <laughs> and they were like, they're like, so you understand you have to bill more hours. I'm like, I know. And like, I kept agreeing with them. Right. And they didn't, you, you didn't, didn't give them really, anywhere to go. Right. It didn't compute. It was like, I was just panicked. I didn't know what to do. So I was like, yeah, my hours are so low. It's, it's really bad. <laughs> and they were like, so you need to bill more hours. I'm like, yeah. And then like the next month it went down to 70 because like now I'm like, I'm going to film school and I'm just, right. I'm going to be leaving. And so I'm like, just going to have long lunches. I'm like leaving my briefcase in places. So people think I'm around and then they come back in and like your hours are even lower this month. And I'm like, I know it's crazy. I don't know what's going on here. And I'm like, are they going to fire me? But like, they never fired me because like, you just don't fire lawyers. It's kind of like not the culture. Right. And so like, then after six months of doing this and using this, six months to earn enough money to pay for mm. film school. Then I was finally like, Hey, guess what? I'm leaving. I'm going to, uh, I'm going some, I'm leaving the firm. They're like, Oh, you're going to another firm. Like it all made sense. And I'm like, no, I'm going to film school. And people were like, shut the door. <laughs> like, like literally shut the door. They're like, right. come into my office and shut the door because I want to talk to you about like, how can I get out? How can I go to film school? Oh, wow. Like, I was like, it, it was like a prison scene where, um, one of the prisoners was getting paroled and everyone else has a life sentence. And they were just like, giving me a thumbs up through the bars. They were like, someone's getting out because everyone was miserable. And like one woman, I remember this true story to, to this day. She said, I just want to like own a flower shop. And I was like, I was like 25 and I was like, yeah, you could do that. <laughs> that seems fun. Right. I'm like, I thought I was just quitting and my parents were like, you're crazy. And I was like, always brought up to believe that mm -hmm. quitting was not a good thing. But mm -hmm. to these people, I was like a hero. So me and my dad drove across country, went to LA kind of like the first time. And I'm like that summer, I was like, well, I'm going to write a script. And I wrote a feature script and I get to LA to go to the producing program for grad school and mm -hmm. film. And I'm like, I got my script. Everyone's like, what are you talking about? We're producers. We don't write scripts. We And everyone wanted to option my script. And I was like, oh, so that's not, uh, I didn't even know what producing was. Uh... So, so I got there, I have a script in hand for a feature. And one of my classmates who was like the smartest person in the class was like, can I option that? And I was like, okay. And she got me, she got it to a lawyer. The lawyer got it to an agent. 
I was in LA for like two weeks. I was repped at Paradigm. Wow. And I thought, well, this is completely normal. This is exactly how you think it's going to go. Not realizing with you know perspective that that was crazy. And that person who got me that agent mm -hmm. is now my wife. So we've been married for 20 years and she we met in film school and uh, she was my first producing partner. So and now we're we're co-shotrunners together. So did you ever ask her if she really just liked you or if she actually really liked your script? Oh, no, she definitely liked the script more oh, than good. me. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, no, it was because um, we were like business partners for mm -hmm. a while before we started dating. Gotcha. No, that's very cool. It's, uh, it all worked out how it was supposed to. But Yeah, like, and the weird thing is you don't think that it's like you're, you're when you're getting lucky mm -hmm. and things are happening that are like, like a really low percentage, you don't realize that that's happening. You think, oh, oh wow, I'm, I didn't realize how good I am. And you think like, well, I must be really good at this because all these lucky things keep happening to me, right. so I must be a genius. And it's only when the bad things happen that you realize, oh, that was all luck, I get it. But it right. took years for me to figure that part out. So whatever happened to that script? Well, that was my first um, film script that was uh, written for Chris Farley, which kind of shows you how old I am. So it was 1997 when I first moved to LA, Chris Farley was alive and he, it was a comedy, which it's going to sound like a terrible idea now, but in the nineties, this is a good idea for a movie. It was about a heavy set guy mm. like Chris Farley, who wakes up in an alternate universe where sort of fat people are sexy and skinny people are not. Mm. And that was it. Mm. It was called weight of the world. Nice. And you just like, the trailer was like Chris Farley is walking down the street to like the BG staying alive. And like, people are like, like construction workers are like whistling at him. And in 1997, people were like, okay, well, this is like definitely going to get bought and made. This is a right. Movie. And I got an agent off of that script and like, it's, you know, a dumb nineties comedy now, but at the time it was the nineties. So right. people there were a like, lot of those. This is, yeah. This is hundred percent a movie. Right. And like, they were like, let's go sell this. And then Chris Farley died. So then right. it was like, well, who else could do this? And the answer is no one. And then the world changed and that no longer became a viable idea for a movie as you know, the world evolved and we realized that that's kind of like stupid. But <laughs> in that era for that time, if I had just gotten to LA maybe a year earlier, that would have probably been his last film. Right. I mean, wow. maybe. Who knows? Yeah. Um, actually, there's a question in the uh, chat that I think is relevant to what you just, your story, yeah. uh, says, uh, Steve Kimura says, uh, did your com comedic instincts get you in trouble in law school? What kind of hijinks did you get in, in law school? I, I think that I, I'm always a little insecure about like thinking myself as a comedy writer. I am a comedy writer, but I don't think of myself as like funny is I am funny, but I'm not like the funniest. I'm not like a stand up comic and I'm not right. like at great, like in a writer's room, I'm not like the joke guy. I can make jokes, but okay. So the thing is that I've always been more of the con artist, the more of scammer. And so like, yeah, I probably have like a couple good, like jokes here and there, but I'm more someone who's like figuring out how to like, not do what everyone else is doing. So like if, for example, in law school, um, in my third year, I didn't take as many classes. I'll give you a, a good example. So um, I needed extra credits and I didn't want to do the work anymore because I was kind of over law school and I was like ready to graduate. So in my last semester, um, me and a bunch of my friends got together and 
in the law school, you're allowed to take one course in a different graduate school that would give you credit back to the law school. So mm. like you're supposed to go take a school like whatever in the business school and take something on whatever. So long story short, we all went to take a class in the business school and the course we took was introduction to law. So we were all third year law students and we were taking introduction to law in the business school, which was like an elementary, it was obviously a stupid course that we all could get an easy A in. Mm -hmm. um, so then the Dean of the law school found out that we were all taking introduction to law and was like, you guys can't take this course. I mean, you could take things in other schools, but you can't take introduction to law. That's right. You're, you're lawyers. And so she was like telling us, we're not going to get the credit. And we're like, mm. had to make this appeal. And we're like, no, you see, there's other areas of the law that this is like a survey course that we haven't taken um, in the law school because we're about to graduate. So this is actually exposing us to other. And she's like, oh, okay, fine, whatever. You can take the stupid course. So that's the kind of stuff that we would get away with. I don't think that's like particularly funny, but more like the kind of way my brain works. No, it makes sense. Um, you would also mention that when you sort of came in, you had your, your script way to the world, got you yeah. signed at paradigm and all this. And then you thought, Hey, I'm really good at this. And then when you hit roadblocks, you realize, Hey, well, you know, I'm, that, that you're not that you're not good at it but hey maybe right. you're not you know super hot shot or maybe no one is super hot shot as you think right. um how do you deal with uh feelings of because I, I know a lot of writers have either imposter syndrome or their mm. sort of their ability may not necessarily match where they think it is you know they may be a, sort of ahead of themselves how do you handle those or, or have you handled those within your own career at different points? Well, I think it's a, it's a, it's hard to do it in the moment. It's mm -hmm. like with perspective uh, and experience of seeing your career go up and down, like many times mm -hmm. you can kind of weather the storm and be like, okay, well, I'm just in a, in a drought now, but I know that it's going to go back up. And, and I saw something on Twitter the other day that I thought was really poignant. It's the idea that you're a good enough writer to get lucky. And it's, you overestimate how um, how much talent is involved in breaking in and being successful and selling material and getting jobs, and you underestimate how much luck is involved because you know it's just your natural ego. When something good happens, you think it's because well, I wrote this great script. People say like you know write a great script and everything will fall into place, mm -hmm. and you're like, okay, what does that even mean? Like, and it's really you know write a great script that happens to be the exact thing that someone's looking for at that moment. And then they, all the elements come together and magically something happens big. So there's a lot of luck involved. And, you know, I think the the flip side of that, which is also kind of, so thinking that you're um, super talented and that's why you're successful is a huge problem because mm -hmm. then when it goes the other way, you're going to be like, well, that's not fair. I thought I was the best writer in the world. And now all all the jobs are going to other people. That's not, that's like a sense of cosmic injustice. So you're going to get really um, down on yourself. The flip side of it is, is when you're trying to like break in and thinking like, well, all these people are just getting lucky and why isn't luck going my way? Mm -hmm. The idea that, you know, you're just like putting yourself out there, you're writing as much as you can, you're doing the best you can. And there's just an even distribution of luck in the world. That's just the way luck works. You know, can you just tell yourself that and make yourself feel better? Probably not. But when you get, I mean, I've had situations where 
I've gotten things that were so lucky that I didn't deserve it. And like, oh, whoa, how did that just happen? And I've gotten things where, you know, plenty of times I was like, okay, this was like the best thing I've ever written and it didn't sell mm. or something where that was going to go into production. And then the last minute they pulled the plug. Um, things where you feel like that's just cosmically unfair. Um, aside from just saying like, look, having good and bad things happen to you over and over and over again. So you just kind of even it out. I think that is, it's hard to really, um, you know, get past that emotionally. So I don't know what advice I would give you other than to have a lot of things, Hmm. you know, it's just about, you know, I don't really, I'm not a sports guy, but I understand batting averages and like having one project that you're just committed to is a recipe for disaster. Hmm. You should definitely be passionate about everything you write, but you can't be like, I've written the script. People say all the time, um, oh, I've written a pilot and I've got like a Bible and I've written like breakdowns for like 10 seasons. And I've got like all the characters, you know, sketches and like, I've, and it's like, dude, calm down. No, don't do it. Write the script, then write another one. Mm -hmm. It's like spending all that time, putting all your eggs into that one basket because you're so passionate is great, but you're better off writing three scripts for the same amount of time and mm-hmm. hoping one of them gets someone's interest than you know writing 10 seasons of something that no one bought yet. That's just putting too much, not just time, but also emotional investment into one project that ultimately isn't really going to see the light of day unless you get lucky. Mm-hmm. It's just the luck factor mm-hmm. is just inescapable. So try to love things, but also leave them and move on and love other things too. Right. And I'll tell you one thing that always gets me through when something bad happens, which happens all the time in our business, you know, you have this project, you think it's going to happen, either it doesn't sell or it does sell and then they don't make it or you get fired or you think it's going to go into production and it doesn't, something bad happens all, all these different hurdles all along the way. The only thing that ever makes you feel better is when you start mentally thinking about the other, the next thing. Hmm. And you're like, okay, I'm, done thinking about that bad situation. Now I'm excited about this new situation. So I've got like on my wall, I'm looking at it right now. I'm not going to turn the camera, but I've got a, a poster that says projects. It's a, it's a whiteboard and it just lists all the things I'm thinking about. And if I like something really bad happens to that one, I just look at the next one and I go, okay, well, that's something I'm excited about. And that one doesn't happen. Then I'm excited about that one. So getting excited about a dozen projects is what makes you not go nuts when something bad happens about one of them. It's yeah. like, you gotta play the field. <laughs> I've started the dating advice. <laughs> no, but that's good advice. I like the idea of the board. So you can, it's sort of that, uh, you know, positive imagery kind of thing. Um, no, I mean, that's, I'd never thought about that. That's actually kind of interesting. Yeah, and, and by the way, if you have so many projects that are not just ideas, kernels of ideas, but things that maybe you've like written a page about, mm-hmm. or you've got a whole script, or you've got, you know, whatever, a pitch, but, some amount beyond just like a kernel of an idea. If you have so many of those that you've written up on your board that you can't remember them all without looking at the board, that's the place you want to be in. Because I don't remember everything I'm working on unless I look up there. I'm like, oh, that's right. There's that one too. Yeah, I'm waiting to hear from, I mean, I'm not going to tell you the names of any of these. I'm like, okay, this one's in development at a studio. This one's in that we're writing a draft for a different studio. This is a pilot that we're waiting for notes on. That is a producing that's a feature film that we're waiting for an actor to get attached it could happen in a year never 10 years who knows that's just there's nothing to do we're just waiting waiting 
I have like a color code system that says waiting. Waiting is the most common color. Hmm. So then there's like, that project's dead, but are we going to try to revive it? That project's dead, are we going to revive it? That hmm. project, are we going to pitch? That one, are we going to pitch? That's an idea. You know, it's just like, I don't even remember them all because you want to have like, and they don't have to all be things that you've gotten paid to write, but sure. they can be things that you're like, got a lot of irons in the fire. And to me, that's how I stay sane when things go away mm-hmm. unfairly, it seems. No, that's great. Well, I mean, and that's great advice to have multiple irons in the fire, as you say. Yeah. Yeah. And like, if you have writer's block and you're like, I can't think of another great idea, that's a problem because mm-hmm. you need to be able to like, I don't have a cure for writer's block, but if you're like, I just have my one idea and I can't think of another great idea. You're like, okay, that's the wrong business. Cause mm-hmm. if you're just attached to one thing, then that's, it's going to be a disappointment. Yeah, no, absolutely. And even going back to your sports metaphor, which we used on the podcast before uh, the, the best, I mean, if you can hit 400, that's, the best batting average of all time. If oh, you can yeah. hit, if you can hit 300, you're probably going to end up and you do it on a consistent basis. You're probably in the hall of fame. If you can hit over 250, you know, 25%, you're yep. playing in the major leagues. And so, you know, I think that, that you know, at that level, so uh, don't, don't, if you only have one project, then uh, good luck. Cause it's, uh, uh, the my odds are not necessarily in your favor. My camera's moving on me. I'm sorry about this. It's all good. Look at that. Get to see more of your office. (laughs) Yeah, it's the, um, there we go. Uh, I do have uh, quite a few more questions for you, but I'm going to jump to a couple. Sorry, I'm like like giving giving people vertigo. My camera keeps turning. (laughs) I'm going to try to get it locked down. Go ahead. Um, Let's see here. Uh, Farzan Farzan asks, uh, can a great original pilot get an aspiring TV writer, a showrunner meeting to get staff potentially? a more general question, how do writers get into a meeting with a the showrunner? There you go. Well, I mean, if you're talking about like a general meeting, just to like say, hi, how you doing? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like getting the attention of a showrunner is pretty hard. And like, I mean, it's usually like I'll, I'll meet with like young up and coming writers because it's like a friend of a friend's like, oh, well, you meet with this person. So assuming it's not that because you haven't like, you know, it's not like uh, you're one of your parents is friends with one of my parents. Um, then as a general matter, you've been submitted to, um, a showrunner who's been who's staffing. Like if you have a, if I'm, if I have a show that's greenlit, then I'm meeting with writers and a showrunner meeting is kind of like the, the last step towards getting staffed. So you're getting, so, okay. So you've write, written an original pilot. I assume then you get a rep of some kind, manager, agent, whatever, lawyer, and then that person is tracking to see what shows are are greenlit and then they're submitting you for staffing so like staffing season is representative sending your material to people who are trying to hire and there's sort of a um two-prong process that's going on simultaneously there's the network that greenlit the show and then the showrunner that are both meeting with people and there's going to be a huge overlap because they'll be like oh we met with this person that's great you should meet with this person so, but you can't get a job without doing both. Hmm. So if the, if I'm doing show like, um, no good Nick was on Netflix. We have another show that we're doing for Netflix. It's not greenlit. We're just in development. But if they say, Hey, great news, your show's greenlit. We're going to be like, okay, we we're going to start meeting with writers that the agencies are going to submit to us. 
we're also going to be like getting referrals from people we know and writers that maybe we've met through that other process through the, through the last couple of years and be like, oh, here's some writers that I'm interested in. And then you're going to set meetings, but then the network has to meet with you too, because Netflix isn't going to hire, let me hire someone that they don't know. Mm-hmm. So they're going to meet with you. So you have to do a meeting with the network and a meeting with the showrunner. So one thing about that, that is a, sort of an obvious piece of advice is try to get the other thing beforehand. Like you don't have to meet with the network during that one week mm-hmm. when everything's going crazy. If you have um, a great piece of material that has gotten you a representative, that representative should be trying to get you meetings with networks and producers all the time. Mm -hmm. So like in an ideal world, if you've got a really great piece of material, you already met with Netflix last year because they're like, hey, let's send this around. And, you know, theoretically, they're like, well, this is an original pilot. So possibly you could buy it, but really they're not going to buy a spec pilot. It's more like, here's a great sample. Do you want to meet with this writer? Maybe they'd be great for some show that you have. And that's a better meeting to get because Netflix is going to be um, thinking about you. If you make it onto their list because they like you and they like your material, then you're literally on a piece of paper that is like writers we like. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, we're green lighting 20 shows a month or something. I don't know the actual number, but they're like, okay, well, would this writer be great for this show? And then they're going to be sending you off to the showrunner who maybe doesn't know who you are. And so then I might get a call from Netflix, assuming I got a show that's greenlit. And they're like, so we met with this writer that we really like, you should meet with them. And they're going to send me the sample first. I'll read it and say, oh, I didn't like their sample. I felt it was, you know, not the right tone or whatever. And I don't want to meet with them. And they're like, no, 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 meet with them anyway. Or I loved it. I want to meet with them. So either way, the showrunner meeting usually happens second it's possible to go the other way around where it's like, I secretly find someone that I love. And I'm like, you guys need to know this person and then I can send it to them, but that's not as common. Mm -hmm. So either way, I mean, that's how staffing works is you have a piece of of material that's usually original these days. In the olden days, it was always a spec episode, but the piece of material is being sent by your reps to uh, producers, studios, and networks. Those are the people in the TV business. And then when someone has something that they think you'd be right for, they're going to send it off to the showrunner and the showrunner is going to read you and then either meet with you or not meet with you. Um, so that's kind of the process. Was that answering the question? Yeah, no, I think it does. Uh, if not, then uh, we can have a follow-up. Yeah. Um, okay, so I just want to sort of uh, continue on with that question because you've both staffed on a few of your shows earlier on and now running your own shows. Uh, So I'm going to ask you sort of how you approach staffing as a showrunner Mm -hmm. in terms of what you're looking for. Uh, Obviously, if you're meeting with them, you either like their writing or you're doing it as a favor for the network. But I mean, chances are you like their writing to some degree if you're meeting with them. Um, But also when you were staffing, what are some of the things that you learned while taking staffing meetings yourself as a writer? Okay, great. Two, two excellent questions. Um, so different showrunners are going to do different things differently. Some people have this attitude, like you're trying to like staff a, um, like a baseball team and like, you need to have like a relief pitcher and you need to have a great first baseman and like, everyone's got a different skill set and you're trying to build a team that has one of everything. I don't really understand that. Maybe that's something that's better for some other showrunners. Like I need a person who's an expert on jokes, but that person doesn't know how, doesn't have to know how to write an outline. I'm like, okay, that's weird. Um, 
and then you, you need someone who's great at story but not good at jokes mm. i'm like how about you just find people that are good at everything mm. um so the people who try to pick different talents is maybe that's more of a network comedy game where yeah. you're like you really need like heavy joke people who don't necessarily have to write good drafts but like i think in the modern era especially if you're writing for streamers your staffs are not going to be so huge like the simpsons staff has got like 22 writers we're going to have a staff of maybe 10 writers and that's a pretty decent sized staff. So you kind of need people who are going to write good drafts. You, you can't have someone who's like only good at like one liners. That's a little bit of a waste of money on the person's salary. Um, so, okay. So here's the first thing to, to know is that, so if you get a meeting with a showrunner, that means they like your script enough. Mm-hmm. They don't necessarily love it. They don't, they certainly think it's good, but it doesn't matter at that point. Now it's like, okay, we're erasing the slate. Now we're starting over again. It's like final jeopardy. Okay. Gotcha. Everything you've done up to that point now gets erased. If you were in the negative, then you're not on final jeopardy because they didn't like your script. And now you've been asked to leave the stage. Right. But if you're in final jeopardy, Mm -hmm. then they've erased your score. And now it's only about final jeopardy and which is the meeting. So it's not like we hire the person with the best script that we rank the scripts and then like in the meeting, as long as they don't screw up, the person with the best script gets hired, the script gets thrown out. And it's like, okay, you got the meeting. We don't care about your script anymore. Now it's like, how do we get along? Now it's dating. And really that's what it is. It's like, do we have good chemistry together? Does this seem like a person I want to spend time with? Um, especially if you're in a, um, you know, an in-person room, which is like the way it's always been up until COVID, you know, are we going to want to hang out together? Is this person seem like, a cool person that like we jibed. So that's 90% of it is, does it seem like, like if a person's like super quiet, you know, is that gonna be a problem? Is this, especially if you're, you know, in a half hour room, there's a lot of like pitching jokes and like not necessarily interrupting each other. It's not so chaotic, but it's a lot more chaotic than an hour room where it's, I've never been in an hour room, but I understand it's to be, it's a little bit more respectful and a little bit more, you know, like cerebral. Whereas a comedy room is like, much more people just throwing stuff out to see what's funny. Um, so if you're very introverted, that might be a problem. Mm. It might be okay. Depends on the showrunner. Um, so there's going to be personality types. Um, obviously, there's diversity things that you, that are really important that you're trying to like staff out with people with different voices. That goes without saying. So I'm going to like move on from that because I'm always going to be hyper focused on like who am I meeting with to make sure that I'm getting a diverse room. Mm-hmm. But once I'm meeting with these people then it's like a lot of it's personality. Um, but also, is this person going to be, I guess what, what I'm looking for is someone who's got um, problem solving skills. Because that's really what we do is like, you're, you're constantly getting notes and you're like trying to like figure out how to fix things. So it's someone who has to me, and this is my own personal preference, someone who's like, what if we change this just like and did it like the opposite and then with how would that affect the whole rest of the story And you're like of course that's the answer it's like there's a problem and i've got a solution people who pitch solutions are like gold so that is kind of what i'm looking for to answer the other half of the question um when i was staffing i mean i came in in a very unusual situation because i was primarily a film writer Mm -hmm. for 10 years and when i decided that I wanted to focus most like almost exclusively on TV, which was a good decision. Um, I started at the bottom, which is fine. I was a staff writer. 
Um, but when I came in as a staff writer, I was like, hey, so I've had 10 movies made and like I've sold six pilots. Right. But I still am fine with being a staff writer. It's a great experience. And I'm not like, you know, too big to be a staff writer. I'm like, please give me an opportunity. I, I love it. But I think one thing I did well in the staffing situation was A, enthusiasm. It's like, if you're like, hey, this is a pretty cool show. I would totally be fine doing this. That's not the person you want, right? right. I mean, also it's like, you can't fake enthusiasm. You can't be like, oh my God, I have never seen a show this good. I am like dying to be on the show. Right. I mean, you've cracked the code on like how to make TV. Then it's like, okay, this person's nuts. Right. So there's somewhere in between where you're like genuinely, and like, baby, this is like a cheat. But to me, when someone is like specific and they're like, I just love the pilot. I just think that the, the relationship you have between those two lead characters is so fun. I haven't seen that before. It's like in between like crazy enthusiasm and like not enthusiastic, but also like, oh, and I, I just love that joke on like page 15 when she was like, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, mm -hmm. that was just so, I mean, love it. Perfect joke. And they're like, oh, I, I mean, you know, we're all writers, right? Sure. Showrunners are like, you're like, okay, A, they really read it. B, they're like specifically quoting something from my, my script. I'll give you, an, I'll have a lot of digressions, but I just wrote a, a feature for um, an animated studio and I got some note, notes back from trusted friends. And I have one friend who's a director and he always gives the best notes because he doesn't just say like, here's a, an issue. He's like, here's what I liked. And then here's what I thought was a problem. And it's like, but he does, he takes the time to say what he likes. And it's like, I love this joke. This is so funny. This was a great surprise. Here's a note. Oh my God, so funny, mm -hmm. so funny. Ha 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 ha, laugh, laugh, laugh. Great joke. Here's a note. And you're like, my favorite person in the world because it's like who doesn't like to hear what they did right right absolutely so i mean look being a suck up is like a fine line but in those staffing meetings okay a i came in enthusiastic i had um specific things i liked about it and i didn't say like and he, but here's my notes i mean you're not going to give the showrunner your notes sure. but i'm like hey i have a bunch of ideas for possible episodes you don't that's kind of like a tricky area because you're not really supposed to be like, hey, pitch us a bunch of episode ideas because then we're not going to hire you, but we're going to use your ideas. Right, right. But if I come in there and like, I'm just so enthusiastic. I know you you don't want to hear my ideas, but I have think it would be a really fun if like they did an episode about blah, blah, blah. And you're just like showing enthusiasm and like, or what about this? And like, oh, I'm sure you've already thought of this before, but what if this? And you're just like pitching ideas and like you're like not going to, you're like the energizer bunny of ideas. Mm -hmm. That's like, okay, this person is got a good enough personality is like enthusiastic is like not going to shut down and like has ideas. And if some of them are good, if one out of 10 ideas, good, that's great. You don't have to have nine out of 10 ideas be good. Right. And I'm like, what if they did an episode about this? And they're like, no, what about this? No. What about this? Maybe that's great. That's what we're looking for. It doesn't have to be, you nail it. It has to be that you have a lot of ideas. Um, and I'm going to ramble here, but um, so that was like a staffing meeting. Um, where I got staffed as a, as a staff writer. When I went on The Simpsons, now that was a freelance job, but when I went on The Simpsons, I was meeting with Al Jean and, and two of the other executive producers. And they were like, what's... So I had done a general meeting and they invited me back to pitch. That's how you get a freelance job. And The Simpsons is very um, old school. It's like very much how the 70s would have been if you were in the TV business. It's like, they take pitches from freelance writers who aren't on staff. And it's like, and so I went in and I 
did my research. I'm like, okay, uh, my episode of The Simpsons is episode 551. Okay, so that's a lot of episodes. So you got to figure out what have they already done? What have they not done? And so, but I went in there and I was like, so I've got 10 different episode ideas. Um, you know, hopefully you haven't done these ones before. I knew they hadn't done it before because I did my research. Right. I was like, here's the first one. What if um, Marge and Homer find out that the neighborhood's been having game night and doesn't invite them because no one likes them? And they're like, literally turns to the writer's system, like, have we done that? Because they don't know. And the right. writer's system is like researching it, like in real time, like, do, 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 do. nope, never done game night. And they're like, okay, that's good. But what else? And I'm like, okay, another idea. What if uh, Lisa gets a new friend at school and it's like the perfect person, their perfect soulmate match, and she has a new friend. And then you find out that Marge is secretly paying this girl to be her friend. And they're like, have we done that? <laughs> and they're like, nope, never done paid a friend to be. And they actually took two different ideas. And they're like, let's do them both and combine them into one episode. So they like, they're like, okay, great. Those, we haven't done them. They sound really fun. Let's do them. And then we just broke the story in the room for like eight hours. And I got that episode as a, as a freelance writer, but it was like building up resilience so that like, you're like, here's my idea. I love it. And they're like, no, we don't like it. I'm like, I don't like it either. Here's another <laughs> one. And they're like, what about this? And you're like, we've already done that. I'm like, I guess great minds think alike. Okay. Right. Number three. <laughs> It's like having people say no right. is the, I'll put it this way. As a showrunner, that's one of the hardest things to do is to, is to keep saying no, because you know, you don't want to hurt people's feelings and you don't be like, okay, no, that wasn't funny. Sorry, not funny. Try again, not funny. And like that idea doesn't work. That doesn't work. It's hard to keep saying that, especially if it's the same person. What about this? What about this? So if someone is like, makes your job easier by saying, um, you know, when they say no, it's like, nope, yeah, that was terrible. How about this? And like, you make a joke about that wasn't even a real pitch. Right. Okay, what about this idea? You know, they it makes it fun and like makes it your job easier to say no to ideas that don't work for you if they're just like going to give you another one and they don't care. No, I love that. That's great. Um, I want to roll back to some of the questions from the chat here. Uh, oh, here's a comment. Ash Laser. Thank you, as always, Kevin, for offering these amazing talks. And thank you, David, for taking the time and being so transparent. Sure. Um, Paul, what do you think is the future of multicam sitcoms? I love the format, but find myself uh, turning every sitcom pilot into a single cam to increase its chances of selling. Yeah. I have a lot to say about multicam. Okay, so No Good Nick was a multicam, but it was a very strange multicam because it um, started off as a traditional sitcom live audience. So you hear the laughing. Mm -hmm. As the series progresses, it's a mystery and it becomes much more serious in the, in the second part. And then in the last four episodes, there's no audience. And even though they're still laughing, it's not as much and it becomes more of a drama. So it's a little bit weird. But here's the thing about multicam is that it's awesome. And people on the West Coast and the East Coast feel like they're over it because they're like single cam is like a much more modern style hmm. of, of storytelling. Right. And hearing the audience laugh seems weird, to, especially to kids who are like, didn't grow up in the 70s and 80s, the, the heyday of sitcoms. A lot of people who didn't like No Good Nick, the number one thing we got is like, I turned it on, I heard all that fake canned laughter and I turned it off. And you're like, that's not fake canned laughter. It's the audience. There's literally people there that are laughing. 
and yes, in post-production, we do sweeten it or like if they're laughing over the line, we cut part of it off or if we extend it or whatever, make it louder or quieter. There's post-production sound editing. Yes, I admit that. But they don't put laughter in where no one's laughing. Mm -hmm. So it's live theater and people don't necessarily understand it. But by the way, the most popular sitcoms of all time and of now mm -hmm. are still multicams. If you... I don't want to get into a red state, blue state debate, but people like traditional sitcoms, CBS sitcoms. The audience laughing is psychologically what gives you permission to laugh. It makes you feel like you're enjoying the experience in a group of people. And when you go to a theater and, the, and you go to see a comedy, which is very rare these days, but hearing people around you laugh or say, say you're going to the actual theater, it's a shared experience. And when we shoot a multicam, there's nothing as fun as making a multicam show. You can make an hour long show. You can make a single cam show. It's drudgery. I've done both. I've done, I've been on many, many film sets and you want to know what a film set is like or a one hour set or a single cam set. It's people setting up lights. <laughs> That's what it is. You go to set, the actors are in the trailer. They're waiting for the second AD to tell them to come out of the trailer because we're about to shoot. And that's like a two hour long process where the grip department is setting up the lights for the next shot. The actors come out, they say their lines, they go back to their trailer and they move the lights. All day long, it's just moving lights. And it's super boring and there's no energy because the actors only come out and do something for 10% of the time. All film production, all one hour, all single cam, that's what it is. Multicam is not that. Multicam is live theater where the actors come out onto stage, the lights go up, the, um, there's a guy who's in charge of the audience who's like got a microphone and there's, a, and there's like a, a DJ that's like playing music and like the lights come up and he introduces and here coming out for, the sh mm -hmm. for tonight's episode is Melissa Joan Hart. She comes out and like does a bow. Sean Astin, like people like start cheering in the light and it's like, they get together and Melissa takes the phone, the microphone and says, okay, everyone, we want to have a great show tonight. I want to hear everyone laughing really loud. And she's like, okay. And she hands the microphone back and like, okay, places everyone, scene A. And then the lights come up in that set and they do the scene live for the audience. The audience has never heard it before. They laugh or they don't. Mm -hmm. They don't laugh. All the writers are standing behind me and my wife who are the showrunners. And the whole team, and by the way, we're wearing suits because it's a tradition that on show night, Friday night, you dress up. Everyone's wearing like suits and dresses and the line bombed. And we're like, okay, what do we got? We have any alts and we have a whole page of alternate jokes that we've thought up ahead of time. And we're like, no, those are all terrible. What do we got? And someone's like, okay, new joke. What if they said this? No, mm -hmm. that's not funny. What about, yes, that's funny. And then I have my script. I write down if what someone pitches me, if I'm like, that's the joke. I write it into the script. I run it by the assistant director to give it to the sound people. And then I walk onto the stage. Most fun, thrilling thing to do in your life. You walk onto the stage, the audience is like, what's going on? Who's the guy in the suit that's walking onto the stage? And I've got a notebook and I'm like, okay, Sean, here's what we're gonna do. That The joke didn't work. We're gonna say this instead. And he like, and he looks and goes, oh, okay, that's good. And he's like, says it three times because they that's how they memorize it. Like, okay, I got it. So now like everyone in production knows the plan and he's memorized a new line. They go back, okay, take two, they come out. Now he says something different and the audience goes crazy. And they're like, wait, he said something different this time. Mm -hmm. And it's like, they laugh, they're like, okay, we've nailed it, moving on. Bell rings, 
scene B, and they and they do it in order. You don't shoot out of order. You shoot it in the order of the scenes, and you over the course of two, three, maybe four hours, if you're doing like a really like uh, network sitcom with a lot of live stuff, you've made the show. At the end of the night, you've got everything in the can. Saturday morning, you take the weekend off because you're done. And then, you know, maybe if you're the showrunner, you're editing a different episode or you're doing other things or rewriting two weeks from now's episode. But basically you're done. The writers go home. Monday morning, you go back to work. In single cam, you're working like every day and it's a five day shoot and it's total. Okay. So anyways, it's a completely different experience. But I think to answer the question, how are we ever going to make people like enjoy the laughing? I don't know. I can't really get people to, if you, if it's jarring to you to hear an audience laugh and you think it sounds like Gilligan's Island, then I can't really convince you other than saying, just imagine you're there. And just imagine that there's 150 people there because there are, mm -hmm. and the, there's just a mm -hmm. microphone over their heads that's recording what they're doing. And I'll give you another example. There's an episode of No Good Nick, um, episode seven or something, where um, Jeremy, it's a very dramatic scene. The, the episode ends with Jeremy like getting in Nick's face and like accusing her of a bunch of stuff and whatever, and she loses it and she punches him. That's the big surprise. And it just the episode ends with her literally punching him in the face. But the audience, it's like a sitcom. And so they think this is going to be a comedy. And it is mostly a comedy, but there's dramatic moments. So the episode ends with her, like, in a serious moment, punching him. And when she punches him, and it's, like, all choreographed, so she doesn't hit him for real, but she punches him, and it looks like she punched him. The audience was like, oh, my God. And someone, like, actually said, oh, my God. And then someone said, oh, my God. So two different people said, oh, my God. And the microphone caught it. Mm. And so when we were in post-production, it was like, great. We we're like, let's use that. And it's just like, punch. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And we're like, then we had to run by Netflix. Like, can we have the audience saying, oh, my God? Mm -hmm. And ultimately decided that we couldn't use the audience saying words. I think it's, I don't know if it was like a SAG thing. Like, if the audience is actually saying words, it's different than just oh, laughing. I see. But we were like, really wanted to use the audience, like, because then you feel like you're in the moment. It's mm -hmm. like, someone said, oh, my God. And like, I feel like that's real. Um, so I'm a huge fan of, of multicam. Look, I mean, there's bad multicams where it's just like, if you're watching, I won't name names, like certain networks for kids might overdo the laughing and make them laugh for stuff that's really obviously not funny. And it just seems super corny. And you're like, why is everyone laughing? This is not funny. Mm -hmm. And some of those shows are not shot in front of a live audience. And that all is um pre-recorded laughter that they put in and so like there's bad ways of doing it there's there's multicam shows that are not made what i consider to be in a good way that are just not actually funny but like think about the greatest sitcoms of all time like what are your favorite shows from history is like seinfeld's a multicam you can hear mm -hmm. like if you go listen to one of seinfeld there's people laughing right you might not remember it friends it's got people laughing cheers all those shows frazier has audience laughter. It's a multicam show. There's limited sets. It's like the haiku of like TV writing. You have only so many sets. You have only so many characters. And you kind of have to like make it work within that framework. It's an art form. So I'm a huge fan of multicam. We're doing a multicam right now for Netflix. And it's fun to figure out how to do that because I want to be there in that room. When you walk onto the stage and you've just, when you've created this show and the announcer on show night 
there's all 150 people on the stands and they say, and here's the creator of No Good Nick, Dave Steinberg and Kichi Kogan's my wife. And you walk out to the audience and take a bow and the audience claps for you. I mean, there's nothing better than that kind of like ego boost and like, this is all worth it. All, everything I've done for my whole career has made it to this point where like someone has introduced me as the creator of a show and people are applauding. Right. That doesn't happen in any other form of production. No one's going to clap for you on a film set. <laughs> There's no hour long dramas. You're making like, you know, NCIS. There's no people clapping for you. They might respect you because you're the showrunner. And like when you walk on the stage, the grips are going to be like, hey, boss, because they like to call you boss. But no one applauds for you. <laughs> that was a, I got a lot of long answers for very short questions. No, I mean, that was great. But I, I think, though, that Paul actually wanted to know the future. Well, I didn't of answer the question at all. No, no, no. I, I think, but in, in, in terms of Paul's question, uh, do you see uh, the future of multicams? In other words, do you think they're going to make more multicams? Yes. As opposed to here's why. Multicams never going away. Sure. And here's why. It takes, it's, it costs half as much. Mm-hmm. There's four cameras shooting simultaneously. Right. You can shoot. The crew works two days a week. There's the Thursday pre-production day and the Friday shoot night. So if you're a multicam camera operator, you're working Monday, Tuesday on one show, and you're working Thursday, Friday on a different show. So you're working at two shows at the same time. Mm-hmm. So our show is only paying for a crew two days a week. Gotcha. So it's just cost effective that a multicam show just costs a lot less. Mm-hmm. So it's a really efficient way of making things. And so, you know, if you're a network, you're like, it, it may seem like, well, they're only buying single camera because multi-camera is corny or it's not like what the audience wants. But if you're doing half hour, the network executive is always going to be having to justify in their minds or to their bosses, mm-hmm. is it possible to do this multi-cam? Is this really, could we do this as a multi-cam show because we can save so much money. Right. And multi-cams are super popular. They're very, like, if you look at the half hour, like uh, Nielsen's, the numbers are always multi-cams are on the top. It's not like, I mean, look, we can all love Ted Lasso. I love Ted Ted Lasso and like, you know, whatever. You want to name some like great single camera shows. We can think that they're really cool and really edgy. Right. But they're just not the most popular shows on TV. It's just not the way what the numbers say. So because of a net the network broadcast network model and selling ad time and the cost effectiveness of doing it, they're not going anywhere. You might not like them and certain ideas are going to be better suited for single cam. But going out with a multicam idea is not going to get you turned away from places. If you've gotcha. got one that really works that way, and again, look, only some places are going to do it. You can't sell a multicam place idea to everywhere. It's going to be basically like the networks, but not CW because they don't do half hour. So, and even recently, Fox didn't do multicam. So, kind of like CBS, ABC, NBC, like like 1970s networks, right? Do multicam, and then in the kids space, everyone does it. You know, you Disney Channel, Nickelodeon, whatever. Kids they love multicam, and then. For streamers, it's like Netflix does multicam. Does Amazon? I don't think they've done one. Hulu, probably more of a single cam place. Would they do one? Probably. Apple probably wouldn't do one. You know, they're too cool for school. They're not going to do a multicam. 
So, do you think some of the places like the Hulu's and the Netflixes who don't do as many as the the networks, the CBS, NBC's, ABC, the legacy networks, because they don't have as many, you know, in other words, they have to go get stages. So for them, maybe shooting on location, you know, is it as cost effective? Like for a CBS, they have a whole lot. And so they can set up a stage with two, you know, two stages just with, for that one show. And then that's it for, if it goes on for like, you know, uh, how I met your mother or big bang theory, just let it run for however long it'll run. And you know, it's, it's cheap and, and, you, tremendous ratings yeah. and whatever. I, I mean, I don't think that's the consideration because okay. like Netflix practically has every stage on at Sunset Gower that's and true. Paramount's around the corner and mm. they shoot a lot of their shows at Paramount. It's just, they like to be nearby so that executives can walk to the lot, mm-hmm. but there's a tremendous amount of stages in that area. So, you know, being able to shoot and also there's this places, it's not like, NBC has used up every stage at Universal. No, that's true. And Universal's like happy to rent out the stage to whoever wants it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Netflix can like have a stage at the Universal lot or Warner Brothers lot or wherever. So, you know, I don't think like every stage is booked already and that Netflix is like, well, we can't do any multicams because there's no stages left. They're just like, we'll just get us rent a stage and there's always going to be some. And if, if the cost of renting one to get it is more, it's going to affect everyone equally. So I don't think it's a question of state stage space. Um, it's just a question of whether the idea lends itself to being done as a multicam. Um, but it's always a viable option. It's mm-hmm. just that there's only so many places that do it. You can't sell, you know, there's not going to be an FX multicam. They just don't do it. Right. No, it's not the style of the network. They're doing edgy stuff. Yeah. Like Dave is not going to be a multicam. Reservation so dogs. FX, FXX. Yeah, they're not doing yeah. it there. So... If you have something that's like, well, could go either way, it's not a question of like, which should I do in a vacuum? It's more, you have to think about in TV, it's kind of governed by demographics. So like, is this an idea that I'm going to sell to CBS? Is this a show that I'm gonna sell to Netflix? Those are two different shows. It's not like the same show. You can make your idea go one direction or the other, but you can't sell the same idea to both places. You can't be like, here's the FX version of the show. And then here's the Disney channel version of it. They don't do the same thing. And they're not for the same people. One thing that maybe people don't realize is that um, for broadcast network, the age of the audience is so old. So like a CBS median age is like 62. It's not like 40, it's 62. Wow. So you're making show for, you're making shows for old people, which is fine. But just that's, you got to realize what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And so like, you can say like, well, I'm going to do the show about like, um, what's the show on Netflix about the, the woman who's, um, the young woman who's like in high school. Um, I don't remember it, but it's, um, you can't do like a high school show for CBS. Right. Because they just don't care. The audience doesn't care about like kids in high school. Um, even Fox, you're like, oh, that's the young network. Mm -hmm. Those, I don't think the average age there is like 55 because oh, like the people who started watching fox in the 90s are the same people now they're, mm. they're now they're that old and they have a harder time attracting audience so like the demographics of network tv you just have to be aware of like what kind of show would they buy and if you're doing a show for fx obviously it's going to be a little younger if you're doing a show for like uh free form that's going to be skewing more female it's like is it men is it for men is it for women for old for young is it for everyone whatever if you're doing a disney plus show you know does it have to have kids and adults yes mm-hmm. 
if you're doing a Disney Channel show, does it mostly just kids? Yes. So like, that's a very distinct difference. You, if your idea is like about a family and the parents have, what if you're breaking it down, you have A stories and B stories, do the parents have A stories? If they do, that's not a Disney Channel show. Mm. If they, if you have stories about like um, the basketball show um, that was just on Disney Plus um, with um, the guy from Full House, uh, oh, I didn't see Big it. Shot. Oh, okay. Sure, you don't watch it, but Big Shot, uh, single cam, but it's like about a girls' basketball team, so mm -hmm. it's like mostly teenage actors and John Stamos, and John Stamos is the star of the show. So, like, demographically, that's a show that like is for family viewing. It's mm -hmm. like, okay, the kids are going to watch it, but the parents are like interested in the adult story, and the kids are interested in the kids' story. So that's a four quadrant show. It's all about demographics in television. So you know, if you're got a show about like you know, eight-year-olds, you know, on a space station, and it's just about four eight-year-olds, who's it for? CPS won't do that show. Right. So that kind of working backwards of like, who might buy this is going to inform your idea demographically, and also for format-wise, whether it's multicam or single cam. Mm -hmm. So maybe these things come together in an organic way, so you're not like, just trying to be like diabolically, like figuring out what someone would buy and that tells you what to write. But when you have an idea to not think about who could buy it mm -hmm. is a big mistake because that's gonna inform your development process. You need to increase your chances of selling it if you're saying to yourself, okay, here's my idea. It's gonna go towards CBS, not towards FXX. Right, or CW or whatever. Yeah, you're yeah. just taking it in a different direction. Now you may be able to say, well, here's, the CBS version and the FXX version of the same idea, maybe that's possible for your show, but those the considerations are what gonna determine all those things, including the format of multicam versus single cam. Right, no, that's smart. Um, Beth G says, is there such a thing as staffing season anymore? I feel like streaming has changed things so much in terms of there no longer being one set time for when these things happen now. Yeah, so I don't know. And here's the reason is because of COVID. So um if it was if if covid ends i assume it will end at some point say next may covid's gone because everyone got vaccinated please go get vaccinated so we can have a staffing season um so now it's may 2022 and covid's long gone and everything's back to normal so then yes there will be a staffing season for network tv mm -hmm. because network tv it's I don't want to go into a whole long thing about um, upfronts and um, ad sales because that's kind of boring. But Fox five, six, seven years ago tried to be like, we're not going to do staffing season. We're going to do things our own way. And they quickly realized that was impossible because if you're broadcast TV, you have to make decisions based on selling ads. And that happens at a certain time of year. And so the upfronts determine the, the schedule backwards from like, when does selling happen? to writing, to pickups, to whatever, to staffing. And so in the broadcast space, you know, the, the, tr the traditional networks, CW, F and Fox, those places are probably going to have a staffing season for the foreseeable future. Mm -hmm. So that's just the way it works there. So that because there's a lot of staffing that happens during that time, that's the season. And there's more staffing there probably Netflix alone equals the same amount of staffing, but because Netflix does things year round, there's no season for Netflix. Mm -hmm. 
and then you know everyone else peacock hbo max whatever and then it's just like word of mouth like oh i heard an hbx hbo max show is staffing get in there right away that can happen anytime and there's no season because they're making shows year-round because netflix is the opposite of broadcast they don't want to release everything in september mm-hmm. like an old-fashioned network they want to do the opposite they want to release everything spaced out perfectly throughout the whole year so that there's not too many stuff happening at the same time so that you stay subscribed right so they're anti-season they're like we want to make sure that everything but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're staffing every day of the year because if they're making 10 episodes of an hour-long show and six episodes of a half-hour show the math doesn't necessarily work out where there's going to be staffing equally spaced so that's where the reps and getting those general meetings with networks can really pay off because then they're like you're going to be able to get access to that information about who's staffing on a streamer before anyone else once once you find out something's greenlit they've already staffed it so if you see it in the trades like hey this show just got greenlit it's probably already in production Mm -hmm. because we don't release that information to the press until we're already done so if so that's why agents and managers and like having relationships with networks and having general meetings is the only way to find out when something's staffing um so people put on twitter like hey does anyone know any shows that are staffing like yeah a if i knew i wouldn't tell you because that's like the most priceless piece of information ever mm-hmm. and and if you find out like this show got greenlit it got greenlit three months ago and they were already like written the episodes probably and definitely hired the staff mm-hmm. so the answer is for broadcast yes there's still a season and there's still a lot of staffing especially if you're an hour-long writer there's a ton of hour-long writing in broadcast so you know but then everyone else is making this probably all combined equal the same amount of tv as the broadcast network so there's like half of your jobs are staffing season and the other half are who knows when right just scattered throughout the year uh let's see here um hey there my name is simba Dabinga. hello simba again um are networks unwilling to take on shows about political issues i wrote a political thriller pilot about a controversial political idea but told it's too political probably i mean you know there's like on the spectrum of like risk taking mm. i would say that a broadcast network is on one end of the spectrum probably like you know disney channel <laughs> it might be like the ultimate uh non-risk-taking network i mean it's for kids they're not going to like you can't even say i don't think you can say um oh my god on oh. disney channel you can't say the word god right. um so like you're not going to do that there cbs i mean there might be some like hardcore episodes of like ncis that like address some things in a very tangential way mm-hmm. but like on the other end of the spectrum you know hbo branded entertainment you know they're gonna do it i mean i don't know the ins and outs of like hbo now that it's hbo max like but like you know there's some pretty out there stuff you know from euphoria to like watch things them. on hbo max they're not i mean they might and, and by the way this is a side note is that like if people say like, oh, that's too political for us, that might just be a reason for them saying they didn't like it enough. That's true. Like too. people will pass on things and feel they don't want to no one wants to hurt anyone's feelings, even though it may seem like people are just a bunch of jerks. Everyone's, you know, does they're people and like when they pass, it's tough to pass too. Mm-hmm. And they, you probably have like a, a bag of reasons that they like pull stuff out of and it's like, 
yeah, we just had something too similar. It was like a little bit of an overlap. And you're like, what does that mean? Well, if it was, if they loved it, that wouldn't have mattered. Mm. The thing is like, either they or their boss didn't love it enough. That's the only reason anyone passes for any anything. And saying it's too political might just be like, yeah, I didn't like it enough. Um, it's a reason to say that maybe like makes them, you make you not hate them. I don't know. But if to the extent that it could be true, which it could be, like there's that spectrum, you know, who's going to be like, look, I just saw the, the season two finale of Dave on FXX. That's not political, but it's really out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, there's like hardcore nudity. And I'm like, I didn't think they could do that on cable. And it's like the stuff that they do on that show is just like crazy. Um, so kudos to them. I love the show. So I don't think that like someone is going to be like at FXX is going to be like, no, that's too much for us. We can't get, we can't go there. Um, and I certainly think like, you know, maybe Netflix might be a little bit more um, up straight up the middle compared to HBO Max. Um, Hulu might be a little bit edgier than Netflix. I don't know if Amazon, where they fit in the whole thing, but you know, they're probably more on the like safer side of things. So there's a spectrum. There's places that will do whatever you want to do if it's mm-hmm. good enough. Right. Uh, let's see here. Um, Steve Kimura says, do you recommend writing specs? If so, would you avoid writing them for shows you want to write for? I do like specs. I'm, I'm in a minority on this. And like I've alluded to in the past that like when I first started out, I don't, that was what people did. You wrote a spec. I wrote spec Voyager, wrote King of the Hill. Um, I wrote, um, just shoot me because it was like, that's your training. Like this is what you're supposed to do when you're a staff writer is write in someone else's voice. And can you nail the characters so that they read it and think, wow, this seems like a real episode. And that's a great skill. And I think that you should do it. My advice is write specs anyway, because it's great training for what the job really is. Forget your voice. No one cares what your voice is. I want you to write in my voice. That's what showrunners are looking for. And yeah, you got to have personality and great ideas, problem solving, this and that and the other thing. But at the end of the day, if you write my characters wrong, then that's annoying because I have to rewrite you and change it all. And so being able to like I duplicate the style of the showrunner is the skill. So do it. So then the question is, okay, now I've written these specs and I've learned how to write spec episodes of things. You know, what do I do with them? Or is this going to hurt me down the road or something? Like, you don't you don't have to show them. You just do it because it's good training. Like, is this going to be your calling card to be like? I've written a spec episode of hacks and this is like, what's going to get me my job. And like, I mean, unlikely maybe if it's like, the, but like, then you have to write a better episode than the show itself, which is hard to do. And kind of the, the rule of thumb was back in the olden days is that if you wrote a spec episode, you would never be able to use it to get on that show. Cause mm-hmm. no matter how good it is, it's not going to be as good as the people writing the show for real. So a spec episode of hacks, is not going to get you a job on hacks. I mean, anything's possible. Like, I say that, but you know, stranger things have happened. You always hear stories like, "Oh, someone wrote an, a spec episode, and it was so good." Then they like the showrunner loved it and said, "You got a job on my show." So, sure, that could happen, unlikely, and you don't have to give the showrunner of the show the spec episode of the thing that you wrote. Mm-hmm. But it's still good to write it, and it's good for other shows. You know, like if I'm reading, I would totally love to read a spec episode of Hacks if I was staffing my show because I'm like. I know it as well as you do. And like, if you, if I think it's good and you think it's good, we're probably right. Maybe the showrunner of hacks thinks like, well, this is not accurate. 
but for other shirt runners, it's a really good sample. And it, mm -hmm. and, and you know, like if you're mm -hmm. staffing, maybe it's a good second sample. You know, like if you say, "Hey, I'm on the fence about your original. Do you have another sample?" And they're like, "Well, I've got a." I keep saying hacks. I don't know why, but like I've got a hacks. So I'm like, "Oh, cool. I'd love to read that." And it's also fun. I read um, a really good uh, South Park that I thought was amazing, and I was like, "Really funny." hadn't seen this idea before and it's like you know you know the characters i've read spec atlanta episodes which since you already know the characters you're like okay this seems like a, a good episode so i think they're really um i think they're great samples i think don't send them to the showrunner of that show but uh definitely do them and, and i i just want to add if you haven't written at least if you want to work in television and you haven't written at least a couple specs uh, then you probably haven't written enough television. Um, I don't know if writing just original pilots will kind of prepare you for, like you had said, writing in someone else's voice. Yeah. Um, and knowing the pace of a show, knowing how, you know, you got to watch a show you like and break it down, find out how many acts it has, find out, you know, what the pacing is like and all this kind of stuff. Um, but I do want to also say that what you had said about reading specs, a lot of showrunners we've spoken to like originals, but there are a number who have said that for a second sample, if they read your your, your original and like it, sometimes they will ask for a spec just to hear your yeah. voice, see if you can match a voice of a show um, yeah. that's already existing. So if if you don't have a good spec, you might want one just because it, you yeah. know, like like Dave or you know any other showrunner might come and come back to you and say, oh, we liked your original, but now the showrunner wants to look at you know, a spec. So can you send us a spec so they can see you, if you uh, uh, can write in someone else's voice. And if you don't have one, then that may actually be problematic. Yeah. And the other thing is, I mm -hmm. totally agree with that. And the other thing is that writing an original is really hard and you might not be at that point in your career where you can pull it off. Mm -hmm. Everyone's like, okay, well, you got to write your original and everyone does it, but I've read hundreds of originals and very few of them are good. Mm. And these are good writers, but the, the problem is that you know, in the TV business, the traditional model was that you'd break in as a staff writer and you'd learn the craft of writing in the showrunner's voice. And then you slowly become a producer and start learning how to produce. And then you'd work your way up to being an upper level writer where the network would then let you hear pitches for originals, but you they would only hear pitches from people who had been doing it for like, I don't know, six to 10 years. Cause it's like, well, you're a co-EP okay, let's hear your pitch, but they wouldn't hear a pitch from a story editor mm -hmm. because they didn't think you could do it. And even though the world's changed and now, you know, you can come in and sell a pilot and get a show on the air, even if you've never written TV before in your life, it's possible. Um, they're going to probably bring on a showrunner to help you. But the problem is, is that writing pilots is really, really hard. And I actually have a tweet about this. I wrote, I wrote this really awesome graphic that says like, here's all the things you have to do in a pilot, all in, this, in the, the amount of space you have. There's so many things going on that establish your characters, the relationships, and to establish the main conflict of the story, plus have it be a typical episode, establish A stories and B stories. And I see so many pilots that just miss one of these elements. And you're like, well, it's never mm. going to be a TV show because here's a common thing, just for an example, not like and I'm saying this is something that everyone does, but a mistake that a lot of people make is they put their protagonist in every scene and they didn't break the story like a professional would because if you're in a writer's room, you break the story by A story, B story, maybe C story. If it's an hour long, maybe there's four stories. But even in a comedy, it could be A story, B story and a runner because for production reasons, you can't have 
the actors be in every scene, they, you need to like, for editing, you need to cut to mm -hmm. the other story. That's an editing question, but also you need to be able to have um, time cuts because otherwise it's, it, it's largely editing, but it's also a function of the actors are not, um, you know, they got to change costumes. Like if you're doing a multicam, they've got to go back into hair and makeup and wardrobe and change for the next scene. And you can't wait for them all day. Not true in other in single cam. But the point is that in a real show, there's more than one story. And also, <clears throat> if you're creating a pilot and all you've spent, you spent your whole time developing your main character and put them in every scene and everything's from their point of view and there's no point of view shift, then all your other characters are boring. All your supporting characters, no one's going to want to be cast in them. They're like, well, I'm just like the supporting character that doesn't do anything, mm. that has no story, no backstory. There's never going to be a story about me. I don't want to play this part. In a real show, like Dave, you know, where you got the Gata story, like, whoa, he's a great character too. Or look at Ted Lasso, everyone's favorite show. I mean, there's like 15 characters that can, can run the show. Like you can have Ted be on vacation next week and be like, Ted's not here but we're still gonna have a story about all these other characters because every character is three-dimensional, is developed. And so you can have A, B, C, look at, I don't we'll do spoilers about last night's episode, Please but don't. the Christmas episode, it had stories from a lot of different characters that are not what you would consider the main character. And they completely work because those characters were fleshed out. And if you don't flesh out your supporting characters and give them their own stories, then you're not really not doing your homework and it's not gonna be an A plus original. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I don't remember who mentioned it to me, but it was another uh, TV writer and they had said something like they remember watching a show. I think it was Columbo with Peter Falk and they didn't appreciate it until they started working in television that Peter Falk apparently was in almost every scene in almost every episode <laughs> Yeah. of Columbo and they just took it for granted that's just what the way it was and didn't think about it until you're actually making television going he had to work every single day yeah and he, I don't think you can do that today but he was like I had no idea when I was watching it it just seemed like oh it's Columbo's show and he's just in every scene but now you can't do that I mean and, yeah. and the, the amount of work that that man had to put in working you know every single day like that uh, was kind of crazy. Anyway, I uh, just yeah. sort of... And tangent. then people and people still do it the other way. I mean, Fleabag mm. is basically just, you know, her character the whole right. time, but that's also, you know, like exceptional writing. And if you can pull it off, you can, I'm not saying every rule is, you know, if you can break the rule in a great way, then you can ignore me, but you're probably not writing Fleabag. Right. And it's just certainly a lot easier to make television and, and more fun and, and and better for the edit and the pacing if you can cut away to other stories. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's just the norm, unless, you know, because Fleabag is not what you would consider a. a... Fle Fleabag was, was a great show, but it was what it was, right? Mm -hmm. and, and if you want to, uh, if you, like you said, if you want to write Fleabag, you can, and if you can, then, then more power to you. But most, most of the time, you're, you're writing a show and, and, people are looking for those that are in the industry right. are looking for certain things and having one character in the, every single scene is not it. Yeah. And also that's a, that's literally a stage play that was turned into a series. Right. So, no, that's like, true. It's a different, different kind of thing. Like you look at like Kim's convenience. It's mm. like that Kim's convenience is a great show that is like 
straight up like 1970s TV making. It's like, here's mom and dad's story. Here's dad and daughter's story. Here's cutaway to the son's story. And it's like, they're usually two, sometimes three stories. There's four main characters. They do every possible combination. There's a mom and dad story, a mom and son story, mom and daughter story. And it's like every possible version of that. And it's just put together in a very um, traditional way, but in a very effective way. And it's just mm-hmm. great. It's great storytelling, I think, um, because they've got four great characters. Yeah. Yeah. And you're not like, oh, it's all about the dad. He's the best character when he's not on screen on board. Right. Right. Because they've done their work and they made all the characters good. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see here. Um, 010101 says, until now, I've only written features, but I'm about to start my very first pilot. Any advice on the differences in developing an idea into a log line for episodic series versus movies? Yes, I do. That's a great question. Um, so first of all, I, another that made me, the reason why I'm kind of like jumped up is because I remember another thing that people do that is really a mistake when writing a pilot is they write the first act of their feature. Don't do that. Hmm. You're basically saying, here's the setup to my story. That's not what a pilot is. Right. A pilot is not 30 minutes of your feature idea. So to convert a feature to a series is a lot more complicated than just taking the first part of it because by definition, a feature idea is something that is close-ended. It's like something that happens over a certain amount of time. It could even be over 20 years, but it's it's if it's a biopic, it could be someone's whole life, mm-hmm. but it's something that has a definitive end. And you may be thinking, well, my series, I in my mind, I know how the series is going to end, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a story engine. So in TV, you're trying to create an engine for unlimited episodes. It's a situation, if it's comedy, and it's a procedural element, if it's a procedural, it's something that makes it so like when you're pitching the story or someone's reading your script, you're like, well, I can see a hundred of these because if it's a network TV, that's how many they want. They want a hundred of them so they can go to syndication. And that's where all the money is. And even if it's going to be like a Hulu show and there's only going to be six of them, but maybe you want three seasons. So there's only going to be 18. Hmm. It's still story engine. So the log line has to tell the audience, tell the, the person that you're pitching to what's something that's going to generate the story, the story engine, the repeated stories, the fact that there are many stories to be told. And if it's purely uh, serialized, it's like, well, this is the first part of the story. And then like, I'll give you an example. Um, of a series that I really loved, Wayne, which um, was on Amazon, great, um, a great sort of, well, I don't mean to be derogative by saying little, but it's a great little series. You know, it's like a Bonnie and Clyde thing. Guy runs off with a girl and then they kind of slowly fall in love. That's very serialized. It's kind of a feature that's caught up into a bunch of pieces, but they cleverly make each episode have its own story that has to end. Each story of a TV show has to have a beginning, middle, and end. And maybe it can be part of a larger story, but it can't just be part of the larger story and not be a story in its own, hmm. on its own. It has to be, what is my idea? How is this generating individual stories that begin and end in the time of that episode that can be part of something bigger, but is a story generating machine and it can be based on the conflict of the characters it can be based on 
the um you know just the in the wants and needs of your main character that's like for example like hannah was a great series that i love it's um on amazon uh, based on the movie about the sort of young girl who's in, like an assassin and it's a larger story that's kind of like a spy thriller but each episode is like a great story that you can watch on its own it's like mm -hmm. there's the problem this week that's going to get resolved it doesn't have to be procedural like law and order where it's like only that episode and then you can watch them in any order if you're doing procedural tv that's the goal is to be able to watch them in any order simpsons episodes you can watch in any order they're purely episodic that's story engine modern storytelling they're much more serialized especially for streamers so there's going to be a larger arc but if you ignore the fact that each episode has to be enjoyable on its own then you're making a big mistake so i think that log lines for series have to really let the person know what is the story engine that's that's going to make episodes be easy to break mm -hmm. you want it to be if you're like in a room and you're like i i'm having such a hard time figuring out what this episode's about there's a big problem i mean honestly it should be super easy to like come up with story ideas and the hard part is picking out which ones you're going to do and which ones you're going to throw away yeah um steve kamoris here has a follow-up um, and he says wouldn't showrunners avoid reading a spec of the show for legal reasons no i mean of their own show of yeah i mean well the the idea here is that they're re they're getting these through representatives mm -hmm. so i mean yes if you're just going to like write a spec hacks and like send it in the mail to like the showrunner of hacks then yeah they're not going to read that and they're not going to take unsolicited samples but the way the business works in, in the real world is that you have a manager or an agent and they're staffing a show and like in the situation which again i didn't really think is too realistic but maybe the showrunner of hacks is like oh you wrote an episode of hacks okay i'll read it but it's not it's never going to be as good as my own but it's coming from your agent or your manager and there's just an understanding mm. that you're not going to, they might be like, oh, we already have a, an episode in the works like this and you're not going to sue them. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, yes, maybe a careful showrunner is going to be like, I don't want to read spec episodes of my own show. Maybe they don't want to read it anyway. Maybe they're like, I don't want there to be any questions about stuff we've already come up with on our own, them thinking that they came up with it. But if you're submitting it through a representative, you just have to like be part of the community that understands if I read it, I never got one, but if I ever had, while we were making no good Nick, someone said, I wrote a spec episode of no good Nick and CAA sent it over to me. And I'm like, we already have an episode about that, that CAA is going to go back to the writer and the not writer's not going to sue me mm -hmm. through their agency. I mean, and plus, I mean, as a realistic matter, we have so much evidence. Like if you're in a writer's room, it's like, well, I have pictures of the of the storyboard right. on the wall every single day. The writer's assistant has like copious notes. I have like hundreds and hundreds of pages of notes, and I'd be like, "Well, here's an here's something from like two years ago where someone pitched that idea." Right. And right. I've got proof if anyone ever tried to sue. But you know, the idea that I don't know, whatever. I don't want to go whole thing about people suing people. It's just not really what happens in the real world. Right. And if it was great and that great, then maybe you would actually hire them. You wouldn't just. It's possible. You know. Uh, but also, as you had mentioned before, on the was it the Simpsons? I think you'd pitched a number of ideas. So, um, you know, 
they, and they had to look it up specifically. So one, they could already have that idea yes. in development, and or I mean, yeah, they, you know, lots of writers pitch lots and lots and lots of ideas. So uh, oftentimes, showrunners that I've spoken to don't necessarily like reading specs of their own shows because that's all they, you know, they're reading right. that all the time and they're talking about that all the time. That, like you had mentioned, coming up with something new and groundbreaking and earth shattering and, and doing it in such a way that the, the it just blows them away. Is, is very difficult to do. Yeah, and in a realistic matter, if you had an idea or wrote a spec of a show and then you found out that they actually already had that in the works, mm-hmm. you should just pat yourself on the back and go, wow, I came up with an idea that The Room came up with. I must be really good. Right. And Great minds on. think alike, right? Yeah, if you think like, oh, no, they stole my idea, then you need, you're need you not in the right business right? because that's just not the way it works. Right. Uh, and, and lastly, we've talked a lot about, about television, but I know you have a lot of experience with features as well. And so I wanted to to talk about um, writing assignments. You know, you've yeah. worked on films like American Pie 2, Puss in Boots, and, and, and on down. But can you talk a little bit about that process? Because I don't think a lot of emerging writers, newer writers, know as much about, you know, meeting on and then working on an OWA. Um, yeah. it, it's all about writing a spec, selling said spec, and then writing the next one and, and going through that process, which yeah. isn't as common today now um so can you talk a little bit about owas and and the process that writers go through to get in a a writing assignment yeah it's it the feature business is is much harder these days than it used to be like you you mentioned um you know and when i was first starting out you could write an original spec and then sell it and someone would buy it and maybe Mm -hmm. make it now that's super rare i know that there's a lot of buzz this week uh um free guys coming out and that mm-hmm. was an original spec and it's getting so much buzz because like look someone came up with an original thing and sold it and it's actually a movie look how rare that is back in the 90s that was like most of it right. so because there's so much um ip that that um studios are developing instead of originals um most of most of your bre- your bread and butter of being a feature writer is doing open writing assignments that's what your owa stands for that you were saying um so the, the key the way to get a, an open assignment these days is kind of like TV. You wrote a feature, maybe you sold it, probably you didn't, but people liked it, and now you're on the list. So, like, whatever. Warner Brothers Film Division is like, oh, this writer who's got a rep and has a spec that was on the blacklist or something that got some attention, maybe never got made, maybe didn't even sell back in the 90s. If you didn't sell it, then like no one took you seriously. Mm -hmm. But now it's like you just have a script that got some buzz. And you never never made a nickel off of it, but got some buzz in a legitimate way, blacklist, whatever, you won a contest, you got a rep, and you're sending it out as a sample. No one ever bought it, but now someone at Warner Brothers, someone at Netflix who makes movies is like, this is a person that I'm now a fan of. And the first step to be getting on their list is you're gonna take a general meeting. So now you're taking general meetings and with, with producers too, film producers and film studios. So you're meeting with a bunch of people and they're like, we like this person. It's not as important that they like your personality, but personality is good because they're not going to be sitting with you all day long. But it's like this person's got um, a really great style. They wrote this uh, amazing horror spec that was like, I never seen anything like it before. Didn't buy it, but <laughs> I, I think they're a, a go-to person for a horror movie. Great. So now the representatives are tracking all the open writing assignments in the world. And they're like, well, we're going to do a remake of Halloween or we're going to do a remake of this or we're going to do a sequel to that. And, or it's like, we have a book, all IP these days. It's like, what can they remake next? It's like, oh, we're going to do the Love Boat movie. We're going to do whatever, Hogan's Heroes movie. Now they need a writer. So they have 
IP, which is largely what they're doing. Because if it was just originals, then they would be like, okay, you could be pitching an original to them or writing as a spec. That's kind of obvious how to do that. You come up with an idea, you pitch it, you write your script, you mm -hmm. sell it. But for the open writing side of things, if they're like, okay, so we're going to be doing um, Greatest American Hero as a movie and we need a writer. So they just put the word out. We're Warner Brothers or whoever owns it, or we're the producer that's involved with the studio that owns it. And we have been told by the people with the money that they want to spend money on a writer. First question is, is that true? So you're going to have your reps really research, like, are they really going to hire a writer? Because this is going to sound depressing, but the most times I lost out on a job to on a feature open writing assignment is to nobody. Nobody gets the job much more than anyone else mm -hmm. because they're like, well, let's just do some freedom. And they're like, take here takes from like 10 writers. And they're like, yeah, no one really nailed it. That's just a stupid idea. Let's not make this movie. Mm. And that's a, actually a true story because I, I don't know why I pulled that out of thin air, but the greatest American hero movie was a project that I went in for and probably 15 years ago with a lot 12 other writers. And as you know, because there is no American greatest American <laughs> hero movie, no right. one got hired. <laughs> And they realized that it was not a good idea for a movie. So, and I just cleaned up my desk, uh, my um, file cabinet. I had 200 takes of like wow. notes and stuff over the last 20 years of jobs I didn't get. Hmm. It's like the, I mean, whatever. I could just go into like all the details of, of pre-development. So you really want to be careful about, and the Writers Guild can really help on this. You can go onto the Writers Guild portal and they're supposed to tell you how many writers are going off this job. So if you know you're going, what they call a bake-off is when there's a lot of writers going up for the same job. If there's 12 writers, that's a lot of competition. Hmm. And if you think trying to break into the business is hard, wait until you try to go up against a whole bunch of other writers who are already in the business. So that's hard. Um, so then what do you, and, and sometimes it's not um, adapting IP or remake or sequel or whatever. Sometimes it's rewriting a script that's already out there that they're, that's not you know, ready to go. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to come in and be like, I'm a problem solver. First of all, how do you get the job? So you're, I'm super collaborative, but that hopefully is really true. But even if it isn't, you should say it because the point is that people are all creative. The producers are creative. The executives are creative. And if you're like, I'm the creative person and you're the suit, mm -hmm. that's a bad relationship. You want to go into that meeting and be like, I'm just here to be a team player and I'm rolling up my sleeves and I've got a lot of ideas, just like in the film pitch. Like I think, but you want to have a point of view because the, the thing about a movie is you're kind of like the showrunner of a series in that you can come in and have your voice. It's like, I think this movie would be amazing if we took it in this direction. And if tonally it was like this, you know, you give them some comps and the, here's some examples of some types of scenes. And then you're like basically pitching the movie. Like, here's my take on the movie. If it's a rewrite, like, I think this is really funny. I love this, this, and this. Here are the problems for me. The main character was was a little bit two-dimensional, one-dimensional. I think it needs to be like more like this. The main, what if the main, what if the main guy was a woman? What about then? Wouldn't that mm. be interesting? You're just pitching changes on a rewrite fixes. Like, what if they're all teenagers instead of, or what if they're all old, just ideas. And so like, if this is like a, big idea that's going to get you the job it's tonal uh, tonal connection with the material it's like my version of the movie is this tone it's super funny version it's the super serious version whatever it's a tonal connection between you and the producer where you're on the same page of what you're what's the movie 
and having big ideas either to rewrite the project or to, um, you know, on an adaptation, it's like, well, book's a book, but in the movie version, we need to forget these elements. This is too internal. The audience isn't going to understand all this, you know, thinking that's going on. So here's what I think we should do. I don't think it's a simple question of voiceover. That's a cheat. I think what they should have is, you know, an AI device from the future that they're talking to. That's going to get the exposition out. Plus it's going to, I don't know, just making shit up here. But the point is you're fixing problems and you're enthusiastically collaborating with the people. And then you got a one out of 12 chance of getting it mm -hmm. or less if, if nobody's is a possibility. Right. <laughs> Um, so we're at the 90 minute mark. Uh, I do. Have, there's one more question in the chat that just popped up. Uh, do you have yeah. time to answer that one? Yeah. Okay. Uh, first off, Morgana says there already is a Hogan's Heroes movie, the great Billy Wilder, uh, what's it? Stalag 17, which inspired Hogan's Heroes. So, of course. I, well, I, I meant more like a comedy, but thank you. Um, uh, and then Simba again, do you think a show runs a risk of not having a unique voice if the writing's room, if the writing room is too large? No, I think that it's unwieldy. It's hard to like necessarily like having more writers doesn't necessarily make things go faster, but here's the thing um, with a large room. So we had 11 writers on no good Nick and say you're you're the simpsons and you have 22 writers mm -hmm. it's not like 22 people are just shouting all day long and everyone first of all on the voice the showrunner is the only voice because mm -hmm. like they have the pen and like the the writer system is like typing ideas someone said this is the idea this is this, this idea and the showrunner is like that one and then that's the one that gets mm -hmm. underlined and everything else gets deleted or whatever the only thing that goes in the script is what the showrunner says so the showrunner's voice if they have a clear um point of view on what the show is hopefully they do and they're able to delegate and collaborate and and get their voice onto the page which is what you know all showrunners should be doing then the voice of the show is never really in danger mm -hmm. the unwieldiness of the of the room is possibly a problem but the point of having big rooms is a lot of times to break them up into two rooms so though like maybe this is not obvious if you haven't been in a writer's room before but if you've got 12 writers you can have six of them go and break a story for episode nine and the other six do the rewrite on episode five at the same time. Mm -hmm. You just have more people doing stuff at the same time. You can also have the staff writer is not there that week because they're writing their episode. They're writing the episode at home. And then the other writers are doing a rewrite and the other writers are doing, you can have three things going on. Mm -hmm. So the advantage of more writers is having more work get done. You don't, we wouldn't have 22 people doing the same thing at the same time. They're never going to be in the same room. It's too many people. And even when we had 11, you're often doing different things. And, and the showrunners, once you're in production or maybe down on the stage, um, you know, there's a question, the director has a question, production designer, you're down looking at a set. Like, is this the set that you wanted? And you're going, you're, you're not in the room. So now your co-EPs are running the room and they're doing something. And maybe two writers are out one's writing a script and one's rewriting a script. So the point of a lot of writers is to get do a lot of different things, not to have everyone doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. And it all gets filtered through the showrunner who gets final say on the final Absolutely. pass anyway. I mean, right? so. there's, the, there's not a word that goes into any script that goes on to, into any scene that has not been approved by the showrunner. Mm -hmm. Um, unless you're just doing a bad job and you don't care and you're throwing it in, you hear stories. I mean, like people are like, oh, well, this showrunner like gave up after season three and they were like, just, you know, not paying attention anymore and right. they just let them do whatever they want. But like, if you're 
I don't think that happens very much now because it's such a big opportunity that no one's going to like squander it. Um, but you're in charge of every decision. I mean, like if it's, there's nothing more fulfilling and daunting at the same time than being a showrunner, because if you like people asking your opinion on things, this is the job for you hmm. because all day long, all you're doing is answering people's questions of what do you want? You know, you're walking on the stage, you know, on a multicam, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, they're like building sets and like getting ready for the show. And you're going into the production meeting and it's like, let's put it this way in a production meeting. That's where you go through the script page by page and all the department heads ask their questions. Mm -hmm. So you're marking up your script and okay. Page five. Um, it says here that they eat um, a lasagna in this scene. Does it have to be lasagna? Is that important? Because the set deck is asking, do we need to get a chef? Are they going to eat it? Or is it just a display? Can we get a plastic lasagna? Or can we have to get a real lasagna? Because the line producer needs to know, do we need to hire a chef to mm, make the lasagna? Right. And they're telling me that that's going to be super expensive. Can it be a hamburger? Does it matter? And so you're just answering questions all day long. And it says here in the script, you know, you said that they drive a Lamborghini. Does it have to be a Lamborghini? Or do you just mean like expensive car? Right. Like, can it be like, just like something that would be half as much money to rent? Mm -hmm. Or is there a way to, that they don't have to have a car at all? What if they just, the scene started and they're not in the car, then we just saved a $5,000 car rental or mm -hmm. something. You know, so it's like people are asking questions. It's about budget. It's about schedule. It's like, well, if we get the car scene. It's going to take us this many shooting days. Like the way you describe the shot requires a crane. Do you want the crane? You're in charge of the money that you're spending on everything. And creatively, you're like, yeah, no, it didn't have to be lasagna. I don't know. We just wrote lasagna because we thought it was funny. But sure, if it's going to save us $2,000, great. It's making a hamburger. Right. I don't, it doesn't matter to me. Or like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You see, the thing is, it has to be lasagna because in, in the next episode, then the the lasagna becomes a key running gag. So it's important. It's lasagna. We need to make it whatever the answer is. People ask you questions all day long and whatever you say goes. And mm -hmm. if they're like, no, it has to be this expensive thing and you're over budget. That's your fault. Right. You spent, you spent your money badly. So everything's on your shoulders. Do you like making decisions and being in charge of stuff? It's kind of like, to me, the dream for every writer mm -hmm. for them to like look at every single word that you wrote and ask, you know, what exactly do you mean? Cause I'm going to go do that thing that you said, you said they sit in a bean bag. I'm going to get bean bags unless you tell me not to, that's exactly what I'm doing. And that is fun. I mean, the two most fun thing, I, I think the more fun thing that I told you before is when you walk on the stage and the audience applauds for the right. showrunner, but then being in a production meeting and have like 30 people, looking at every single word in the script and asking how exactly do you want it? Because this is what you said and we're here to do what you said. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, definitely the voice will show through for most showrunners, regardless of how big the staff is. Yeah. yeah. If the show's good or bad or whatever, it's just on you. <laughs> no it's pressure. It's going to be on you. No pressure. Yeah. Um, no. So thank you, uh, Dave, for coming on today. And it, it's been absolutely fantastic. So. Oh, well, you're welcome. Thank it. you so much. Such great answers and uh, so much insight. Um, Marlon's Way says, shout out to Hartford, Connecticut. Yeah, I'm from West Hartford. That's where I oh, grew okay. up. Okay, very cool. Um, and uh, if you could stick around just for a minute afterwards. Yep. Uh, but be sure to follow David on Twitter. If you're not already, it's at David H. Steinberg. 
Uh, Thanks for the plug. And if you're on the west side of Los Angeles, which I am, although I have not been, I know you host or have hosted in the past Mm -hmm. uh, writer meetups. Yep. So hopefully once Delta sort of runs its course and or people get vaccinated enough or they can allow kids to be vaccinated so I can go out and do things again uh, as I have an eight-year-old unvaccinated child so far. Um, hopefully, yeah, I can participate as well. But, I mean, it looks like a lot of fun. So um, you yeah, just posted on Twitter? Yeah, we po- I post, them, I post the, the announcements on Twitter. Obviously, we're not doing them right now. But as soon as it's safe to go back out there, we've been having these things. And, like, amazing turnout. We got, like, I don't know, 150 people show up to the last wow. one. And it's just, like, all writers yeah. just hanging out. And the, the big innovation is we got name tags. just says Dave on it. And makes a huge difference. People who are like, I'm an introvert. I'm afraid to, like, talk to other people. Right. But then, like you got a name tag on it, like, oh, hey, you're here for the thing. My name's Dave. You're oh, let's... And people were just, like, mingling. It was so wonderful. Oh, that's too. great. That's exciting. Um, but, yeah, so uh, hopefully that will come back in the near future. Um, so thank you guys all for watching and participating and or listening if you're listening to the audio version. Um, and we will see you next week. 